what we're going to do in our class for today, I want to pick up the questions that you uh, placed, set, for addendum 4A, which were really very good. And uh, then the main part of chapter 4 is going to be the focus. Now, I want to say this. There are essentially four really critical chapters in this book. Chapter 4 is the first of them. Then chapter 6, which is on levels of signifiers. And then chapters 10 and 11, which I'll kind of take together as a unit, 10 and 11, because they flow one right into the other. And then, and that's, that gets the whole business of how do you know you can say anything and why can we assert that there really is meaning to a text? What about any intention? All that stuff is handled there. And then chapter 13 is application. So these are your sort of highlights in the book. Not that the rest of them aren't important, but you've got to get these to get the basic argumentation. For example, 5 is an expansion of 4. Okay. It's important, but if you don't get four, you can't get five. So what I'm going to do today, we're going to go through your papers on addendum 4A. And then I'm going to, for the sake of chapter four, I'm going to hit some highlight points. I'm doing a little more summarizing than I would on most of the chapters. It's just so critical to get basic uh, semiotics down. Then we'll take your questions next time. So we're going to launch in today with your questions essentially on addendum 4A. And uh, <clears throat> there was a clarification here. Um, uh, Dennis, you uh, came in and asked here, and I had this right on top, about the NB. I have this in the chapter on various occasions. What does that mean? That's Latin for nota bene, note well. Or as JB would put it, yo. So <clears throat> this is uh, you know, kind of highlighting, hey, make sure you notice this point. Okay. Now to Sony. What an interesting question you raised. He says here, after reading this, I thought about how many people quote a random scripture reference and so on. How do we equip parishioners with the proper knowledge? We certainly can't teach a hermeneutics class for them. Really? Yes, you can. And I would like to say, Andrew, <clears throat> there's actually one up on the web done by... Yes, I, I did this at uh, St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, here in the St. Louis area. It's five sessions, and actually goes through the stuff you guys are going through. Signifiers, conceptual signifieds, all that kind of stuff. But it's, 
it's done at a kind of a throttle down level, though it's really throttled up compared to what most people would think you'd get at a parish. But I'd have to say, Andrew, I think you actually have to do it. See? You're going to actually have to talk about how you interpret a text on several levels. Why? Because you'll be doing it with your people. So don't sell this short, this idea that you can actually do this. Will Rosine, the father of my colleague Bob Rosine here on the faculty, taught for many years. He was president of Concordia Milwaukee, now Mequon, for a number of years, worked at CPH. And he had a, a saying that I think is very good. He said, actually, anything is teachable on any level, just not at the same speed. So you've got to watch how fast you're going about these things. Now, next, Mark, Adrian. Now, Mark, just so I can save my voice here a little bit, I'm going to come over with your paper. I'd like you to read out this paragraph. Mm -hmm. uh, during undergrad, I studied finance. I think an application can be applied from the field of finance to textual criticism. The major things that we looked at when analyzing a company would be the financial statements, the text. Fin fin the financial statements can be broken down to three main ones, the balance sheet, the income statement, and the statement of cash flows, the words. You could further break these statements down to things such as operating assets, non-operating assets, operating ex expenses, etc. the letters. If you just looked to see how many assets the company had, you really had no clue how good of a company it was. If you looked at just an individual statement, such as the balance sheet, you really had no clue if the company was performing well. For example, for example, a company could have plenty of assets, which is shown on the balance sheet, but not be using those assets effectively and actually have a negative cash flow, which is shown on the statement of cash flows. The vice versa relationship is true. This company would be a bad company to invest in, but by just looking at the balance sheet, would, not ap would, be, would appear to be a very well-run company. You need to look at all parts as a whole of the statements. Is this a correct analogy? Yeah, yeah, it is. So the, the totality has its own total meaning, and it's each individual part. You, the idea is not to try to break it down into the smallest possible parts. It is the totality that's actually the issue. No, I thought it was a very good analogy, as a matter of fact. Thank you for that. Very good. Now, here is a question, Ficken. Here's a question I think a lot of people have had, and I wanted to talk about this specifically. And you're, you're talking about this, the context is the entire text. When you begin to translate a text, you translate it by starting with the words of the first verse. Therefore, where do you get the context of the passage? Or where do you look to find the context of the passage? So in other words, you have this problem of you have parts. Then you have the whole. How do you get started? I mean, how, how does this thing, this is a really, really critical question. Now, a couple of years ago, a guy wrote a paper that I have kept because it did such a good job of explaining this. 
This guy wrote, his name is Brandon Booth, and he wrote this in 2004. He says this. And, you know, this is similar to the hermeneutical spiral I talk about at the end of the last chapter. He says, it's very similar to the so-called bootstrap problem in computer science. Let me put that up. I did not know about this until he wrote this paper. In order for, and you know, I think the referent here would be the idea you pull yourself up by your bootstraps, okay? In order for a computer to work, now listen to this, it's really good. Its operating system must control the hardware. But in order for the operating system to function, it must be executed from the hardware. The problem is, how do you get the operating system to run? The whole must be running for the parts to operate, and the parts must operate for the whole to run. Now, Dave, that, this is precisely your question. The answer is, to hardwire a small initial set of instructions for the computer to execute in order to run the operating system. This is called bootstrapping and represents the minimal prior knowledge one has when approaching the doc document, which minimal prior knowledge is used to bootstrap oneself into working with the parts to understand the whole, which is then used to understand the parts. So in other words, you can't start out not knowing the alphabet. You gotta have that. You gotta have a basic understanding of the Greek language, or if you're doing an English text, of the English language. You have to know that the is an article. You have to know about nouns and verbs and things like that. So that kinda gets you into the system. And now you're going to have, now you're gonna start to work and what you get you come back and modify. So that's why toward the end of chapter four, we got the hermeneutical spiral. See, it's not a hermeneutical circle. There you're just kind of going around and nothing's happening. So chapter four itself says the same thing as addendum 4A, but 4A is done in more traditional terms. That's why I have you read that first. So you start out, you kind of get a little bit of stuff Oh, yeah. Then that helps you to understand what you just read, and then you get more, and presumably you get more. But, but this is why you got to know something in order to get going, just even if it's a bare minimum. That's a very good question. Thank you for that. Okay. Now, wood. Stop hiding back there. All right. I have found it useful and helpful when in sermons the original meaning of a word is given because it usually brings to light the fuller understanding of the overall text. Ah, no. <clears throat> I mean, original meaning 
maybe if, no, 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 I'm not going to even, just stop that. Uh, I'm not going to even acknowledge that. Uh, because the original meaning might, might tell you something. But you're going to have to determine whether it actually is helpful or not by the context. See, so you can't just say, ah, here's the original meaning, it must be revelatory. No, you're only going to know that if the context actually suggests that it is, in which case the context is determining it anyway, suing. Would it be a, uh, a fair way to say it that you would look at the various meanings, such as, I can't remember what the, uh, what the verse is, but it talks about the, it, yeah, it's probably John 1 where the, the, the light knew the darkness, but the darkness did not. Oh, yeah. And then it's either overcome or understand. Katelaben, yeah. yeah. And it's, it's one of the two meanings. But in such a way that when, when I looked at an undergrad, it, you couldn't say definitively which one it was, but you can use the two various meanings to come to a better understanding, maybe theologically. Is that appropriate or is that still inappropriate? <clears throat> we talk about that more in Chapter 8, that particular verse. But let's go back to what Wood was saying. You're not going to solve the problem by finding out what the original meaning was. Because okay? at that time, it could mean comprehend or overcome. And if the first meaning was overcome, that's not going to be determinative. That, that, that's really kind of the point. You're not... This business, this is why I'm taking some extra time on this, this business of original meaning and etymology is something that's just got to be kind of napalm-bombed out of people. It, it's, it's so, we are so kind of wired for this, and I, I'm not sure exactly why. Well, it's modernism. You know what it's kind of like? How many of you in this class know what the Lamarckian theory of evolution is. Any of you know that? Lamarck, early evolutionary theorist who felt that evolution took place by, by contextual pressure, not by um, adaptation by, let's say, um, genetic change. So in other words, if you cut off rats' tails, eventually rats' tails would disappear. If the food supply was really high, giraffes would stretch their necks to get it, and eventually they'd have longer necks. Okay? Now, this has always been discounted. The fact is, in standard evolutionary theory, the, gira the giraffes that would survive would be the ones that had, through some mutation or whatever, longer necks. They could feed from higher branches. All right? But it wasn't like stretching got them to be longer-necked creatures. Now, the Lamarckian theory of evolution has always been discredited, but everybody kind of believes it. I mean, just, you know, the average person. Oh, something or other is the case because... The fish had to swim faster to get away, therefore it got faster, you know, uh, uh, aerodynamics or whatever. So 
This is the same thing with this darn original meaning etymology business. There's just this feeling inside of us, like Plato's theory of language, or like the at subatomic physicists, that if you get down to something the most basic, then you actually understand it. When in fact, the whole is the basic unit. All right, now here's something that's similar. Cipher. Rather than be able to simply look up a word in a lexicon, I must also analyze the context I find the word, including the syntax surrounding it. I have learned in my small amount of education so far that an appropriate way to find the meaning of a word is to do a word study and find all the places that the word is used in the Bible or by that particular author. Then I can see how it is used in those places. No. Might be interesting, but if you were in chapel today, Tim Dost preached about the law of sin and death from Romans 8 and the law of the Spirit. Now let's just take a look. Take your Greek New Testaments out. Verse 2 of chapter 8 of Romans, yep. Mm -hmm. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, Eloitherosen, has freed you from the law of sin and death. What the heck does nomos mean there? Law. <clears throat> does this mean that there, that the spirit of life has a legal system and that the law of sin and death is the Decalogue or some law that accuses you and, and drives you to resist and to die? Look, flip back a page to Romans 7.21. In verse 20 he says, this is Romans 7.20, For if ha, that which I do not desire, tuta, this I do, no longer am I working it, but he oikusa en emoi hamartia, the dwelling in me sin. Now verse 21. Therefore, Ara, I discover, I find the law for me desiring to do the good that for me the bad lies close at hand. What the heck's the meaning of law there? Is that the Decalogue? See, now what you're going to have here, Joe, is clearly in something like uh, flip back to Romans 3. Verse 19, page 414 on the Nestle text. 
For we know that as much as honomos, the law says. Well, all right, now that's got to be the Decalogue there. But in chapter 7, you have, he knows this law that for me who desires to do the good, the bad lies close at hand. That seems to be like a principle or something like that. Then when you turn the page to chapter 8, verse 2, the law of the spirit of life in Christ has freed us from the law of sin and death. Their law maybe is something like controlling force or something like that. Well, I don't know. We've got to figure this out from the context. See, I, I mean, you know, we've got, I, I think in chapter 7, that clearly means principle. I find this law. You've got the Decalogue or whatever in chapter 3. Here, it's um, controlling force. All right, now, what do you find with your word study? Well, you find there's all kinds of things that it could be, okay, which you can find from a dictionary. Now, what you do is you got to look at the context, see? Because there's, there's no way, and Pache Wood sitting back there, it's not going to help you to know what nomos, quote, originally meant. It's not going to help you. Or what it, quote, really means. Or even what it, in the majority of times, means. You know, for example, here, here's a really good example. Take the word justify. Now, in our context error, <clears throat> what will we usually use justify to mean? God justifies the ungodly or something? What does it mean? Make you right. To declare you righteous for Christ's sake or whatever. I could use this a hundred times, and all of a sudden, I might have the following sentence. You know, Joe, I'd like you to justify the way you handle that manuscript, especially the way you justified page 6. Now there, justify means show your right, not declare your right. And justify the page means line up the lines. You pr this will probably be the last time in your entire four-year career at the seminary that you will hear me use the phrase, justify a page. But if I use that, it's got to mean that. There's no way that finding the original meaning of justify is going to help you here. It's going to have a meaning in a context. And you're not going to find out anything more, and this is really a very critical point, you are not going to find out more and deeper things about justifying a page if you discover that originally dikaiao has a law court motif and has to do with declaring the status of an individual. That isn't going to tell you any more. Okay, go. No, no, uh, just, just a second here. Joe? Oh, I was just going to ask, though, um, doesn't looking at how the word is used different places in Scripture give you that bigger context? What bigger context? Well, like when I said that, like, 
Take these three uses of namas. Well, like if Paul's using namas in like a particular book, it might possibly be related to that meaning. He might use it later similar to that meaning. Could, but maybe not. Because when you get to Romans 8, with this law of sin and death and the law of the spirit, he hasn't used nomos like that before. So it'd be, and, and as a matter of fact, let me just tell you something. My very first doctoral student, who wrote a dissertation that is in many ways, in many ways, the finest doctoral dissertation anybody's written for me. His name is Michael Middendorf, and he's, he wrote a dissertation on um, it's, he has a really neat title. It's called The Eye in the Storm, and he uses this eye. And it's all about Paul in Romans 7 saying the good that I would, that I do not, and all the rest of that. And he analyzes this whole thing, and who is Paul talking about that be referent when he is talking about the good that I would, that I do not, is it pre-conversion Paul, post-conversion Paul? All those kind of questions, okay? Now, as part of this dissertation, by the way, this is published by Concordia Publishing House. It's a very good dissertation. As part of his dissertation, he did an overview of the whole book of Romans. Really is substantive. When he did his reading of chapter Eight in this overview. He does not take my view of this. He thinks that the law of sin is like the Decalogue, which is then used by sin to accuse people and so on. So he's not thinking of it as ruling principle or something like that. He's got evidence, okay? I'm not saying he doesn't have evidence. But doing a giant study of all the places that the word is used and what it might mean doesn't help you. I mean, what you've got to do is you've got to argue the context. Okay? So we are just so caught up in the notion of a real meaning which... Uh, often takes the form of etymology or the first meaning, but may not, because some people think it's the majority meaning or something like that, that, like I say, you've you got to almost napalm bomb this out of people. Um, and this is why, in this course, we have this heavy theoretical um, discussion of language of what is actually the nature of language and how it works? Like addendum 4b, is there a direct connection between thought and language? So if you see the way Hebrew is constructed, they actually thought different than Greek people did and stuff like that. These are huge questions. They're huge questions because arguments, when people are doing exegesis, often come down to a guy appealing to something like this. Okay, Eric, did you have your hand up? Okay, uh, we. I was just going to make the state the question: What good are word studies? Like, what good can they provide you? Not much. Um, you know, you could, uh, you could see 
all of the ways that it might be used, but in general, a dictionary gives you that. Okay? Now, at that point, and by the way, I might just say, as far as using a dictionary is concerned, this is very critical. Never believe it when a dictionary puts a passage under a particular meaning. It's only the dictionary maker who thinks that that's the case. Dictionaries do not fall out of the sky. It is, and, and as a matter of fact, <clears throat> well, let me say a little bit about this. The BDAG, the Bauer Danker Arndt Gingrich, published 2000. I actually worked on that with Fred Danker. If you look at the introduction, he's got a nice couple of lines uh, in commendation. I thank him for that. When Fred and I were working on some parts, we would actually argue about meanings or argue whether a passage should go one place or another. And I remember this specifically. We were arguing once about a thing, and it didn't happen often that Fred would ever admit I was right. But I remember one time he did. He said, okay, I think I'll change that. When I hung up the phone, I said to my wife, that is really scary. What would have happened if I hadn't phoned Fred tonight? The dictionary would have been different. And you realize that, in fact, a dictionary is nothing other than a record of readings. It is essentially a record of readings of a, a really famous guy, or B, a whole bunch of scholars that agree with each other. <clears throat> but a, a dictionary is not the truth in that sense. It is still a guy thinking the passage ought to go here. Now, I will tell you this. Fred did a fantastic job with BDAG. And one of the things he did is he would say, you know, it might be here or it might be under this one. And that's exactly what you have to do. So when you're using any lexicon, always be exceedingly suspicious if a passage is slotted under a particular meaning. Might be. But it's essentially somebody's reading. Yeah, Eric. Just out of curiosity, do those slotting of Bible verses change depending on somebody's denominational background ever? Nah, okay. I, nah, I don't think so. No. Nah, it's just a matter of your reading. Right. Okay, now, this leads us to Grace and Albers. My question for this chapter is, I am wondering if there is any value to the Greek Platonic foundation or the ancient and popular Western analysis when translating. Maybe there is a certain time when one should be used and the other one used at another time. So in other words, now, Mark, this gets back to the wood principle back there. Is there, now, now this, what I'm going to say, I hesitate to say, because it's like waving meat in front of a tiger or something. 
It is possible that etymology might be helpful in extremely limited cases. And this is as a totally last resort when you have nothing else to go on. This happens all the time in Hebrew, where there will be some listing, let's say, of plants or animals in the Holy Land. And there will be a word, and nobody has any idea. It's just a listing, so context doesn't really help you. It doesn't occur again. What do you do? Well, they take a look at Ugaritic and Akkadian and see if there's any root connections and stuff like that. But that is error, what we would call a testimonium paupertatis, right? Let me put this up. Got to learn this phrase. This is just one of the great phrases. Oh, use it in, in systems. That's a testimony of poverty. That is to say, you can see the word pauper in there. Testimonium paupertatis. That when you have to resort to it, it is a testimony to the fact that you have no, no other resources. It's that seriously bad. Gee, Grayson, you can actually use this. I can just see you using this now. Dr. Aaron, I believe that presentation is a testimonium paupertatis. And you fail. It's great. <laughs> Now, this one, this one, Tom, this one, your question uh, turned out to have kind of an existential force for me. Uh, this was very interesting. Is it inappropriate for a person named Jonathan to say that his name means gift of God? All right? Gift of Yahweh, Yo-Nathan. Hmm? Because in this time, names mean nothing really and are simply labels given for identification. Well, very good. You are right about the way names are thought of, their sound, and so on like that. But our son, Jonathan, is adopted. And we couldn't be more proud of him. We gave him the name Jonathan for just that reason. Because he was a gift of God. And if we had received a second child and it had been a boy, we would have named him Nathaniel, which is Jonathan is gift of Yahweh and Nathaniel is gift of God, El. Uh, but, you see, we were thinking of that sort of specifically, but I would say, generally speaking, a guy and a gal, you know, who are married and have a baby and are looking at names and get these name books and stuff like that. They tend to do what sounds good and, you know, if there was an Uncle Jonathan in the family and so on. But that, that's an interesting question. And I would have to say, in our case, we actually did look at that.
Are you thinking of something in your family? Or? No. No. Hmm? Hmm? Okay, Nick, let me just take your uh, question here. How much context do we need to understand the meaning of a word? One sentence, context of the paragraph, chapter, a book? I don't know, Nick. The answer to that, I think, is as large as is necessary to make reasonable sense of what you're trying to interpret. And now I'm going to give you kind of an overall answer to something like this, which you will hear me talk about on numerous occasions, and it'll come up in chapter 11, 10 and 11. That finally, how are you going to know if the translation or your understanding of a passage is the right one? It's a matter of fit. See, in other words, does it handle the maximum amount of evidence, including the really important stuff that you got to try to handle? So is it handling the near context and the far context? Does it make sense culturally? Does it make sense socially? Does it make sense theologically? When all that comes together, then it becomes a, what would you say, kind of a, a satisfactory interpretation. But it's, it is subjective in that sense. And I think all of those who sign on to the train to oblivion piloted by Mark Wood, <coughs> I, I think one of the reasons that we're looking for this, real meaning and first meaning, is we want something objective. See? So if we get to the original meaning, we can be sure that that's what it means. But there is no surety like that. Justin is not here. But <clears throat> had a very interesting question. Listen to this. My question is, without anyone alive today, how could we get those insights as to what their words might have meant if their culture, culture did the same with words? How would we ever find out? All right, I would say that when you're reading the New Testament, how would you ever know what a particular word meant? Okay? I would think that there's at least four answers to that. I mean, four things that go into answering it. Number one, there were ancient lexicons. All right? So those would help, which leads me to the second one. <clears throat> Almost all texts that we read are translated into other languages. So then if you know the second language, <clears throat> you can kind of work back, like Latin. So you have the translations. Then third, you do have epigraphy, epigraphs, the uh, writings that, that take place on temples and things like that, carvings in stones. 
those will help you with the use of words mainly because those things, epigrams tend to be pretty short and kind of obvious. So that will help you. Finally though, it all comes down to context. And that's all you're going to be able to rely on in the end. Now Chris Escher asked the following which is very interesting. As we're talking about different languages, what about Chinese or any other Asian language that uses characters for individual words? I gotta admit to you, I do think that Chinese, Japanese, which use um, kanji, the signs that have individual meaning, meanings, are a little bit different than what I'm talking about here. I think what happens with the Far Eastern languages might be more building block with individual meanings and as a matter of fact some of these kanji signs do actually have meanings kind of built into them. <clears throat> so we're not talking about that. That's a very interesting insight. Now, here's the last thing that we're going to take uh, for this. And this is from Whedon, and I hate to encourage him. If one does not know much about the historical culture and customs, Shouldn't a lot of our time be spent learning these customs so when we interpret, we can do so accurately? We do that in chapter 6 when we start talking about interpreting on several levels. There's where, well, it'd be an example, Andy. Um, there's where you've got to know the culture, like this. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves. And a couple of uh, people came and passed by, a Levite and a priest. Why did they pass by? Were they just heartless? Was there something about purity and temple service involved? Was it something about the danger of the road? See, you've got to sort of know about that to make sense of the story. We call that interpreting on level two. That is to say, you're interpreting the deeds of the story. You're not interpreting the words at that point. You're interpreting the fact of passing by. What that mean? So we'll talk about that, and we'll have several uh, uh, resources that we can look at. Okay? Very good. All right, thank you guys. This was a <clears throat> terrific set of questions, and um, uh, this, is, this is so key, this entire you know, basic understanding of how language works, that uh, you, you almost cannot spend too much time on that to get some of the basic stuff down. Now, in the time that remains, I want to make an introduction to Chapter 4, the main part of it. 
And uh, let me erase this here. And I normally spend most of my time on your papers answering specific questions, but as I said, this time I'm going to spend a little bit more time highlighting major features of the chapter. Now, the first thing I want to talk about is what the heck, Dallas? What's with this mumbo jumbo of signifiers, conceptual signifieds, and all this? Why doesn't he just talk about words and meaning? Here's why. Let's take the word word. Okay? And let's take this sentence here. All right? Now, this is not a trick question. Dallas, <clears throat> what is the first word in the sentence? Mm -hmm. I'm telling you, it's not trick. <clears throat> All right? Second, what's the relationship between the first two words? The sentence. It's about an inch and a half second. <laughs> okay. okay. Now, that's not, uh, apart from reading a book, you're not going to answer it that way. What are you basically going to say? The relationship is Dallas is the subject and struck is the verb. Right. You're going to say Dallas is the subject and struck is the verb. Now, when you answer that way, you have a different meaning of word in your mind. The first one is, you're thinking, what is the first signifier on the board in the sentence? D-A-L-L-A-S, Dallas. <clears throat> the second one, when I ask you, what's the relationship between the first two? Now you know by word, I don't mean the signifiers, because then the answer is about two inches. You know by word, I mean the meaning conveyed by those first two signifiers. So whatever activity this is, this guy's doing it, and Joe's disappointed, okay? So, so here's the first thing. We use signifier rather than word because word actually covers two different meanings or conceptual signifiers. The signifier and the conceptual signified or meaning standing behind it. And as I say in the book, and we don't have a quick, quick cheap, dirty and nuclear answer to this. <clears throat> but which of these two are you talking about when you talk about verbal inspiration? Or both of them? Or neither of them? What is that? All right, now, <clears throat> what about meaning? Why use conceptual signified? To get into your vi field of vision here, <clears throat> that meanings are something in your head. They're not out there someplace. Meaning is conceptual, and it is signified by something. Now I'm going to back up. 
Again, this is why I'm using signifier rather than word. Why? Because things other than words signify. So, for example, going like this signifies anger or threat. Going like this signifies, hey, I want you to come over here. It's a more friendly gesture. No words are, no words at all have to pass. So, so the reason for the big mumbo jumbo in this is to get you to realize that there is a problem with our word word and that, that's kind of one pole of it, and the other pole is stuff other than words signify meaning. So Andy, to go back to your question, the cultural stuff. See, a guy passing by, well that signifies something, but it's not words. I mean, the guy didn't go by and say, and as I am going by, I'm doing it for this reason. No, no, I mean, the, the word itself is, is doing it. I mean, the, the action itself, the action itself is doing it. So this, it's, it's really kind of critical to sign on to the project here that we've got, um, I don't know, what would you say, a... Um, a kind of complex thing going with using this new vocabulary, but it's actually rather important. Now, this is all section A of the chapter, The Nature of Words and Meaning. And under that on page 89 is this thing of composite, uh, composition of meaning, that meaning is actually... Uh, it has a composite nature. So if you just take a look at page 89, there are components of meaning, complexes of characteristics evoked by signifiers in the mental world. What's kind of important about this, and it goes on on page 90, what's important about this is to realize that you take words like pistol, rifle and shotgun, they're not that far apart. The difference between shotgun and rifle is whether there's rifling in the barrel or not. So it's not like they're two totally different words. They have different components. And what we would say is something like this. What I would call denotation is the components you gotta have. And connotation would be the components that are usually there. Like say for example for shotgun. The denotation would be smooth bore and generally firing pellets or something like that. A connotation would be a fairly powerful weapon and probably somewhat large. So in other words, you're not thinking of a shotgun being this size. Not that it kind of couldn't be, but if it would be, you'd probably preface it with the word miniature because you're not thinking that that's normally the, what that would mean. Uh, yes, Sue. This kind of is along with that, but how does slang enter into this? Because the thing that I, that I referred to in my paper and that it keeps running through my head is when you use shotgun as a verb, 
you talk about shotgunning a beer, you're not talking about shooting it, you're talking about drinking it a certain way. Or when you're talking about rifling through someone's papers, you're not talking about taking a gun and shooting a pile of papers. Right. You're talking about, you know, <coughs> now, stuff. Yeah. Now, we'll talk about that uh, further when we talk about how language actually um, is able to expand and to take in the possibility of characterizing new reference like that. I mean, it's very interesting how it happens. Yeah. Now, wouldn't, kind of going off this, this shotgun, pistol, yeah. um, machine gun thing, wouldn't this come up in a situation where, you know, you kind of need the context if it just was the word gun? Yeah. See, now, we're going to talk about that in Chapter 5, how there are broad words like gun, and then <clears throat> you have underneath that, like rifle, but underneath that you could have automatic rifle. See? So uh, there are broader words and narrower words depending upon the number of necessary characteristics. Thus, gun has fewer necessary characteristics than shotgun does. Right. So you might, you might put it like this to speak sort of Velsian mumbo-jumbo here, that a more general word is one that has fewer necessary components of meaning. And the more narrow word gets, the more necessary ones it has. So if you have AK-47, that's going to have a whole bunch of necessary components as opposed to something like shoulder-fired weapon or something like that. Okay. Okay. So for tomorrow, oh my gosh, we're over time here. For tomorrow, we will pick it up here. And uh, that's a good question there, Ozzy. Um, and I want to go over that chart in particular. And I have an article for you that I'm going to hand out from the New York Times about umpires and determining meaning and so on. And uh, my letter to the New York Times, which they refused to print, refuting the article. But anyway, so we'll... Uh, Baseball umpires, yes. Okay, we'll see you tomorrow.